Well, welcome to everybody joining us both in the room and joining us online as well. We welcome you into this space and hope that you really encounter God through this time together. And not just that God exists, but we hope that you become convinced about God's character, that he actually wants to engage with you, that he actually wants to invite you into relationship. And anybody that sort of makes that step towards God will find this incredible thing. He steps towards us. He's incredibly invitational in terms of wanting to embrace us in a relationship. And I hope that's your experience through these moments. Over the last few weeks, we've been working through the book of 1 Thessalonians and we've been considering the greatest return of all, which is the return of Christ, which Tina has just shared with us about. And a couple of big ideas that we've been thinking about by way of introduction, big eschatological ideas, or that is the end times, always stumble over that word. The what is very certain, the when is anything but. So in other words, Jesus has told us he's coming again, but he's left the details of the timing of that a mystery. And so whenever somebody comes and says, I know, I know, I know, I know, February 23rd, the year 2026, you know that person's off track. They're not at all aligned with Jesus. We don't know the when, we only know the what. The early church drew ongoing encouragement from return, especially this young church at Thessalonica. They looked forward to the return of Christ every single day in their deep suffering. They grew ongoing strength from this great hope they had that Jesus was coming again soon. And they live with a great sense of urgency. This is easily spotted throughout the New Testament. The, the early believers felt like it was going to happen in their lifetime. They were going to see this return with their eyes. They were going to hear that trumpet sound with their ears in their physical lifetime. For them, it wasn't something way up there. It was a very much today thought in their minds. And it dramatically affected their everyday lives. So we've spoken about the effect it had on things like marriage and possessions. Everyday values were kind of turned on their head in view of this great Christian hope. And we know this is a church that's um, obsessed with return because every chapter in this book finishes with reference to the return of Christ. And it's quite appropriate that Tina hints in her interview about a young man who, who just hopes to get his engine room running. <laughs> before the return of Christ. While that thought is pretty raw, that's very much where we're going in this fourth chapter of Thessalonians. And we're looking at this topic called Integrity Matters. As we reach chapter four of this uh, wonderful book, we reach some heavy stuff. Love, sex, work, death. They're all addressed in this punchy chapter, chapter four of Thessalonians. Next weekend, we'll get to dealing with um, relationships with others. This weekend's about dealing with, with managing ourselves, our own in integrity, our own purity. Many Australians scoff at the Bible's stance on sexuality nowadays. It's so old school, so outdated. What many Australians don't realise, though, is how progressive scripture is on many, many social issues. The biblical worldview often leads culture towards change on many big ticket issues. For example, think racial equality. In the early historical narrative, uh, racial equality is very, very narrow. And even we could point at God throughout the Old Testament and say, God was very selective who he dealt with. He picked individuals, he picked families, and then he moves on and picks a nation. But who is it that, that opens that up? It's God. 
And, and we get to the New Testament and God says, my favour is not upon a person or a family or a nation, but on humanity, period. And all of people on, on planet Earth get open to God's love and grace and acceptance. Not only the Jews, which were his special people in the Old Testament, but the Gentiles, all people get opened up in terms of racial equality. Think gender equality now. And we see Jesus throughout the Gospels attributing value to women that society at the time did not place value in. And we see many a time Jesus making a hero out of women. The resurrection account is one such example where women uh, are treated the honour of being first to arrive and discover the risen Christ. And we know that in first century Jewish context, women were not highly regarded. In fact, if you were a Jewish male, you awoke every morning with a threefold prayer. Now, this sounds chronically sad as you look back in hindsight, but here it is. They, a Jewish man would wake up every morning and thank God for three things that he was not. That he was not a Gentile, that he was not a slave, and that he was not a woman. Those were the three things that a Jewish man woke up and knelt beside his bed each morning and gave thanks to God that I'm not a Gentile, I'm not a slave, and I'm not a woman. Now that sounds horrific in hindsight, doesn't it? But such was the discrepancy in their mind of being born a woman and what that meant for you. So Jesus walks into that context and challenges it and radicalises it and says, no, 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 I don't view women in a lesser way, not at all. And so we see throughout scripture this opening of progression towards issues in society. However, as we come to sexuality we see the opposite trend happen. Flexibility in sexual expression actually diminishes as the biblical narrative wears on. While in many issues this, the Bible opens up, here it closes down and gets narrower and narrower. Where once the Bible might have been loose, by the end it gets really, really tight. Take polygamy, for example. That is being married to more than one person. Now, you would find it hard throughout the Old Testament to make any sort of an argument that polygamy is wrong. We understand in many cases that marriages had other motivations other than sexuality. But if we take Solomon as kind of a top shelf example, he has a thousand wives. Now, that's not just the fact that Solomon's some kind of a sex addict, you know, where he needs a different partner, breakfast, lunch and dinner. You know, he asks Siri, am I up to Mandy? No, that was lunchtime. You're up to Mandy, you're up to Mary tonight, you know, that's number 649, go ahead to that room. That's not how it was for Solomon at all. A lot of these marriages had political motivations. So Solomon would marry a princess from another country in order to maintain peace with that king. And by marrying into the family, that was kind of a guarantee that that king wasn't going to attack your nation. So many times it was about political motivations. However, we can't dismiss the fact that many, many, many people throughout the Old Testament had multiple sexual partners. And for the most part, this seems to go uncorrected by God. Doesn't seem to get much of a comment. If there's any criticism of Solomon, it's that he took on wives that weren't Jewish rather than he took on a lot of them. It seems to be the big um, commentary on his life was the problem was that he took foreign wives rather than Jewish wives. But as we follow the biblical narrative along, what we see is 
sexual freedom diminishes, diminishes, diminishes as we go on in the New Testament. And here we find the Bible clash with culture in a pretty fierce way. And John MacArthur comments on this and he says, 21st century values, ungodly values, say this, any conceptual sexual activity is basically good. But the Bible doesn't. Sexuality is essentially a biological function, not a moral act. But the Bible doesn't. Instant gratification is more important than delayed satisfaction. But clashing again with the Bible. Couples should live together before marriage to determine their sexual compatibility. Society says that. The Bible doesn't. So the Bible comes along and crashes headlong into these values that we see in society now. And sexuality is ginormous in the mind of God. It's a real defining marker of whether someone's on God's team or not. And we see that in our reading that we're going to pick up now in 1 Thessalonians 4, where verse 5 says, Don't live like unbelievers who in their sexual conduct say anything goes. God says, no, 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 no. They would only say that because they don't know me. They're not in relationship with me. They don't understand what I would really want. And Paul has to speak into this Thessalonian context where sexual promiscuity is rampant and, and guide them into alignment with God's will and way on the matter. So let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and we pick it up in verse 1. It says, Finally, dear brothers and sisters, we urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus to live in a way that pleases God as we have taught you. You live this way already, and we encourage you to do so even more. For you remember what we taught you by the authority of our Lord Jesus. God's will is for you to be holy, so stay away from sexual sin. Now, holiness goes beyond sexuality, but certainly includes sexuality. Verse 4, then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness and honour, not in lustful passion like the pagans who do not know God in his ways. Never harm or cheat a fellow believer in this matter by violating his wife, for the Lord avenges all such sins. And we have solemnly warned you before, God has called us to live holy lives, not impure lives. Therefore, anyone who refuses to live by these rules is not disobeying human teaching, but is rejecting God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. For a few moments, I want us to drill down and just think about this idea of God's will. Because that's what it says in verse 3, that it is God's will for us to live in a holy way. Now, holiness is not a popular term nowadays. We don't have a clue what being holy really means. So whenever I see the word holy, I, I think toothbrush. Toothbrush, it, it's an object that's separated for a particular person's use alone. I don't even share my toothbrush with my wife. I love my wife. We have a wonderful relationship, but we don't share toothbrushes. My toothbrush is holy. It is just for my use alone. And in the same way, God is saying, I want you to be holy. I want you to be separated for my use alone. And this is God's will. And so therefore, stay away from sexual impurity, which is the cultural norm. But notice these words, it is the will of the Lord for you and I to be sexually pure. 
the will of the Lord. In my childish understanding of the will of the Lord, not just about sexuality, but the will of the Lord more generally, I thought it was really, 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 really small. And trying to find out what God wanted was kind of like trying to find a needle in the haystack. And there was even this um, phrase that I got introduced to when I was young, which was the centre of God's will. I wonder if any of you ever heard of the centre of God's will. And so you imagine a board like this, something like a chessboard, and there's all of these options on here of where you can go and what you can do. And somewhere amongst all the maze, you had to find the centre of God's will. It's this mysterious thing, and there's no more explanation given it to, than that. But somewhere in this great maze called life, I had to work hard and long to find the centre of God's will. It was like there was tons and tons of options, but be careful not to get it wrong because somewhere in all of those options was the centre of God's will. You know a phrase you won't find in your Bibles? The centre of God's will. It's not in there. It's a made-up phrase. Now, the sentiments are good, but it's actually not quite accurate. And what it does, it, it kind of reduces and limits our understanding of what God would want. And I want to speak to you about the freedom of God's undefined will. And what you need to understand is in many, 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 many areas of life, God doesn't have a will. God doesn't have an opinion. God doesn't have a limitation that you must live in. God has given tremendous freedom. And this is both good and bad. We see in the biblical narrative what humans did with their will, yeah, they quickly turned away from God and went their own ways. And we still suffer the repercussions of their poor decisions all these years on. We are in a world out of sync with its creator. And see, God gets the blame for a lot of choices that are made by humans. And it's quite unfair, but it happens. But God exercises his authority in an interesting way. He's in control, but he doesn't control everything. I'll say that again. God is in control, but he doesn't control everything. He chooses to let us humans make choices. He leaves plenty of white space for us to choose. He doesn't control everything. And that's why I both giggle and find it a wee bit sad when preachers overstate things. When they say things like this, every answer you need to all of life's questions is found in your Bibles. Well, it just isn't. It just isn't. There's a million and one critical issues that you won't find referenced in your Bibles. Let me give you a few examples. Where should you live? Should you stay in Brisbane or should you move to Sydney? Definitely shouldn't move to Victoria in 2020. <laughs> but where should I live? You know that you don't find that in the Bible. What uni course should I do? My grades open up ample opportunities. Now, I don't know whether to become an accountant or a dentist. Does God have a will? Is there a more holy option between the two? How do I decide? I can't find a verse that tells me whether to take this job or that job. I mean, they're comparable pay, they're comparable options, and, and yet I don't know whether to work for this company or that company. You know, there's tons and tons and tons of questions that you have in life that are not in your Bibles. 
Your Bible doesn't tell you the name of the person you should marry. It doesn't say Kate or Kerry. It just doesn't. The Bible doesn't answer questions like that. How many children should you have? Is two enough or should you go for 22? I mean, <laughs> the Bible does not give you answers about such things. I once knew a man well who was terribly sincere but terribly misled. He was paralysed with this whole concept of God's will, of finding it in everything. And here's what it would be like to be with this guy. You'd be standing at a coffee shop and he would be standing in line praying and waiting for God to say latte or cappuccino. I kid you not. This was this guy. He was so paranoid with hearing from God on everything that he just got himself tied in knots and lived in bondage. And it was sad. That guy is no longer in the faith. He tormented himself with the will of God. He was forever afraid to miss the magic box, the centre of God's will. And he lived his life tormented by the idea. For him, God's will was small and definitive rather than big and freeing. And he was petrified of missing the will of God. Let me zone out one layer further real quick to think about the bigger biblical story. When God put the first man and woman in the garden and gave them life, God set them there in the garden and he said, every tree you can see, scan the horizon, every single tree you can see, is good and it's food for you and it's all yes. Yes, 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 yes. Which one's which one, Lord? They're all yes. They're all yes. There's just one no. There was only one no. There was one thing. There was one tree that had forbidden fruit. The rest was godly options. We need to start thinking differently about God's will. Less about it being small and limiting and more about it being expansive and stuff dreams are made of. God had one yes and God had, sorry, God had one no and God had thousands of yeses for the first man and the first woman. Here's the point in the big issues of life. I think much of the time God is saying, that thing you're processing, that thing, I'm happy for you to move forward and make a decision. Go ahead. It's your choice. Make a call. Just know I'm behind you and cheering you on as you do. Oh, but John, shouldn't I pray about it? Well, yes. Pray for wisdom, generally speaking but not so much whether to live in Smith Street or Bowen Street. God says, up to you. It, it's white space. Make a choice. You're free. You're free to choose. Now you have a friend that lives three houses down in Bowen Street and there's lots of trees in the neighbourhood and you really, really like it. Choose that then. You're free. You're free. It's your choice. God wants us to hear freedom. Whether I should be in a dentist, dentist or an accountant, up to you. Whether I should rent a house, buy a house, up to you. Whether you should have two kids or 22 kids, up to you. 
up to you. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of big life issues, all of them significant, all of them significant, but not to God. Not from the point of view of being pleasing or displeasing. He says, you work it out. You decide. You decide. I don't have a will on these matters. And here we then consider human sexuality. And we see this is very, very, very different. God has a strong opinion. God doesn't say, up to you. You decide. You work it out whether seven partners works for you or 13. No, no, this area has clarity all around it. We don't get to decide this. God has a will. We read about it. Find someone that loves Jesus, marry them, and stay faithful. End of story. That's God's will. There's freedom in God's undefined will, but when we come to sexual ethics, no. Here we strike a boundary of God's defined will. As the biblical story unfolds, we see God saying, this is how you do it. This isn't optional. This isn't vague. And we strike something stunning when it comes to biblical clarity. It's the phrase that scripture always hesitates to say. And in fact, you won't really find it in your Bibles apart from Thessalonians where God explicitly says, this is my will. But that's what we get here. Have you spent the majority of your life chasing down the will of God? Let me say it's right here, plain and simple. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, here is God's will. Stay away from sexual sin. This is the will of the Lord. This is the will of the Lord. This is the will of the Lord. Some of you have been waiting a long time to hear it that clearly. This is the will of the Lord. This is a box where God says, hey, you haven't got all of this freedom here. You've got just one box to stay in. The manifest will of God on so many issues has been left fuzzy. But contrary to those gazillion things where, where it's vague, here it is clear. If your name is Callie, then Mark, Carl and Pete are all options until you marry and you decide that is your box and God says, stay there. Be faithful to that one person. That's a biblical boundary. The Bible puts language around this. It rarely ever does. This is God's will. Any sexual encounters that lie outside this, a committed marriage relationship of one man, one woman, is outside the will of God. Now, someone's going to push back and says, well, what I do in my bedroom is my prerogative. It's private in there. Well, God says, not so. Well, what I do in there is my choice. I mean, if I mix it up with a bit of porn or, or, or this or that, then it's up to me what's appropriate for me. Well, God disagrees. On most issues, God says, you get to choose. I don't dictate. On this one, he says, you've got to stay in a small box. This is different. This is rare. This is bizarre. We've struck an area where the Bible clamps down really, really, really tight. Apparently, this is an area God gets hot under the collar about. Some will even say narrow-minded, so old school, so limiting. I warned you of that at the beginning. Biblical speaking, 
Biblically speaking, freedom diminishes in this area of sexuality. Why is it that on so many issues God says, whatever? You work it out. But on this, he's got a, such a clearly defined will. Well, that God has an opinion here means it must be something important and there must be repercussions of ignoring it. And there is. Breaking sexual boundaries can have lifelong consequences, long-term consequences, massive repercussions. It's that huge. Many a home is broken down off the back of this. Many a person has found themselves with, with guilt and paranoia for decades over this area. Someone else will say, well, hold up, John. I'm unmarried, but not by choice. I mean, I long for what you're talking about. One man, one woman, and it's a committed relationship, but it hasn't happened for me, and it's not even looking close. What do I do in the meantime? Keep yourself pure. What about for someone else that's same-sex attracted and comes to the biblical model and goes, well, how does that work for me? I mean, one man, one woman together in a committed relationship, that's tough. We just have to go with what the word says, though. There's a boundary here, and it's a small one. It's forbidden fruit. I, I don't understand why. When God put Adam and Eve in the garden, he didn't tell them why to stay away from that tree. He just said, stay away. You have to stay away. I haven't got a good answer as to why God says certain things are forbidden, but he does. And we have the choice to obey or not. Now, I have all the compassion in the world for people that have same-sex attraction. But same-sex attraction is not a sin. It's not a sin. It's no more of a sin than being attracted in any other area of life. It's what we do with that attraction that determines whether it's sin or not. I've met with many same-sex attracted people who feel so much torment around this area. But we all struggle in some, some form or another. But here, in this particular area, God has given us a boundary and it's small and it's tight and I can't even explain it only to say it's rare. So it must be really, really, really important that we take note of it. God has boundaries around our sexuality, not suggestions, but a will. It says it here, a will. I've got a will about this. A clear directive, one man and one woman together in marriage. Break out of that mould and the consequences are real. Here the word of God says here in 1 Corinthians, run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. You shoot yourself in the foot. Don't you realise that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. For God brought you with a high price. So you must honour God with your body. For someone with same-sex attraction or someone else who's considering an extramarital affair or someone who's just turned 18 and tempted to try their first sexual encounter, why the tight boundary? What would I operate under those limitations? Well, our text gave us three reasons for sexual ethics. God's vengeance, verse 6. God's purpose, verse 7. And God's spirit, verse 8. That's the textual reasons for compliance. 
But I'm going to take some liberty to paraphrase. I mean a ton of liberty. I want to take it higher up a notch. You mean higher than the text? Yeah, higher than this particular one. I want to boil it down to this. Your sexual purity comes down to this. Do you love God? Do you love God? Do you really trust God? Because it's only a love for God that ultimately would keep us operating in this boundary. And it's relational trust that has us complying to the will of the Lord here. It's trusting God's character enough that when he says to Adam and Eve in the garden, hey, you've got hundreds of options, tons and tons of white space, but here's a boundary. Stay away from this one forbidden tree. He was speaking for their best interests. And he is for us all the way down to this day as well. But it comes back to this question, do I believe God's will is good then? I must. Or else just saying this is God's will means nothing. I must actually embrace it, that it's a good thing. Why would I do that? Because I understand his character and his heart and his nature towards me. He wouldn't just be saying that's off limits just for the sake of it. He says stay away because that's going to cause your life harm. You will, you will regret that you ever went there should you go there. God has put boundaries around our sexuality. We don't have all the answers as to why, but we do have clarity. He says, find a spouse and stay in that square. And that's it. That's the only freedom we get in this area. It's tight, eh? The biblical narrative here clamps down. But do we trust God? That's what it comes down to. May we have the grace to live up to this call from our gracious God. As the music team come back, I invite you to stand for prayer. We sung earlier, you turn shame into glory. You turn shame into glory. And I love those words. So I jotted them down as we're singing because Here's what God does. He, he gives us the name before the behaviour. He says, as we come to him for forgiveness in repentance, it's simply saying, God, my way is not working. I choose your way. As we come to him with humility and repentance and brokenness, he calls us by a new name. He says, you are mine. You are mine. You are mine now. And we come to him in faith, in humility, and he washes us clean and gives us a new name. You say, but hold on, John, I've got so many things to still work through, whether it's this particular issue we're talking about tonight or something completely different. But he accepts us on the basis of that humility and that trust and that simple reaching out to him. So in this quiet moment, would you do that? Would you reach out to him? Would you admit that you fall short, we all do. And so we reach out to you, Father, and we ask that you would give us undivided hearts. 
that we would see you've given us so much freedom in your will. And you love us so dearly. There's some things you've said, hey, stay away from that. That's dangerous. God, give us a greater capacity to trust you, to not lean on our own understanding, but to actually trust what you say is for our best, that you love us dearly and you want to lead us into greater and greater freedom. We choose your will. We choose your will because we know it's good. We trust you with our hearts, Father.